this. I'm guessing this isn't the future you had pictured for yourself when you first clapped eyes on that money. Don't worry, I'm not the man who's after you. I know that. I've seen him. You've seen him? Man, you're not dead. Huh. What's this guy supposed to be, the ultimate badass? No, I don't think that's how I'd describe him. Well, how would you describe him? Well, I guess I'd say he doesn't have a sense of humor. His name's Sugar. Sugar? Sugar, Anton Sugar. You know how he found you? Yeah, I know how he found me. It's called a transponder. I know what it's called. He won't find me again. Well, not that way. Not anyway. Took me about three hours. Yeah, well, I've been mobile. No, you don't understand. What do you do? I'm retired. What did you do? Welder. Settling, MIG, TIG? Any of it. If it can be welded, I can weld it. Cast iron? Yeah. I don't mean braze. I didn't say braze. Pop metal. What did I say? Were you in NAM? Yeah, I was in NAM. Hmm. So was I. So what does that make me, your buddy? Look, you gotta give me this money. I got no other reason to protect you. It's too late. I spent it. Got a million and a half on whores and whiskey and the rest of it just sort of blew it in. How do you know he's not on his way to Odessa? Why would he go to Odessa? Kill your wife. Maybe he's the one who needs to be worried about me. He isn't. Yeah. <laughs> You're not cut out for this. You're just a guy who happened to find those vehicles. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from Living in Cinema and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. That was a wonderful scene from the spectacular No Country for Old Men from 2007, the film that won the Coen Brothers the Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay Oscar and also won Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem. 2007 was a fantastic year overall for movies, and we're going to talk about that. And um, also, we'll play, we'll be playing some more clips from No Country for Old Men throughout, of course, because it's such a fantastic film. And that's, we can start with that if you guys want. Yeah, sounds good. I thought you were going to, we were going to pretend like that was Craig and I. Uh, <laughs> Reenacting the the movie. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. We were pretty good, huh? You were really good. I liked your Woody Harrelson was really good. I know with what voices, right? I mean, and not only because we've seen the movie so many times that we can visualize it just from hearing the words, but it it, it plays so well, almost like a like a radio show, mm. because the the voices and the uh, you can just imagine it so so vividly. You know what the Coens do so brilliantly in this is that they. They picked actors who could really take the pared-down dialogue and fill it out. Like, if you watch... First of all, they 
This is a film where they waste no dialogue. No, there's no throwaway scenes. They don't have people just talking unless it's for a specific reason or a funny reason sometimes. But every line is so carefully chosen and so perfectly spoken by the actors. You can hear how great he cast this with, with Woody Harrelson, who over the years as I've watched this movie again and again and again and again, for some reason I always come back to the Woody Harrelson character as being one of my favorite parts of the movie because... He's a guy who really thinks that he he can somehow outwit Anton Sugar. Like he's not like Josh Brolin who really has no idea what he's up against. And Tommy Lee Jones has no idea what he's up against. He kind of you know, he knows that it's some weird guy with a you know, this bizarre machine that's like taking people's brains out. He knows that it's some, you know, bad man, but he doesn't know what Anton Chigurh is. The only one who really does is Woody Harrelson. And he somehow thinks because he's aware of that and he uh, understands him more than most people that he can um, somehow avoid, you know, get away with not getting killed by Anton Chigurh. But of course, we know that he does. So. Hello, Carson. Let's go to your room. You don't have to do this. I'm a day trader. I could just go home. You could. Make it worth your while. Take you to an ATM. There's 14 grand in it. Everybody just walks away. An ATM. I know where the satchel is. If you knew you would have it with you. I could find it from the riverbank. I know where it is. I know something better. What's that? I know what it's going to be. Where's that? It will be brought to me. Out of my feet. You don't know to a certainty. Twenty minutes, it could be here. I do know to a certainty. And you know what's gonna happen now, Carson? You should admit your situation. There will be more dignity in it. You go to hell. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Do you have any idea how crazy you are? You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. You could have the money, Anton. Nobody gets away from being killed by Anton Chagrin. <laughs> no. 
And what you say about the dialogue, even though at, on, on first viewing, a lot of the a lot of the lines of dialogue may seem like throwaway lines or that they don't have any significance. As you see the movie the second or third and fourth time, you see the relevance of the lines, and you can you can if you, if it's not immediately apparent, if you think about each line, you can tease out what a deeper meaning behind every word means, oh, right? Yeah, what behind sure. every line. It's almost Shakespearean that way. And that's that's a credit to uh, Cormac McCarthy, too. And to the Coens for recognizing it, for being smart right. enough to know which lines meant something like, the coin ain't got no say. You know, like mm-hmm. that kind of line, the way that he uses the coin as a metaphor mm-hmm. for people, for the randomness of life and death throughout, mm-hmm. you know, is so beautiful. And it does sound like they're just rattling off a line, but you're right that if you stop and you think about it, each line really does have deeper meaning. The way he says the co- this coin has traveled here, as if the coin itself has a has a destiny of its own, as if the coin is is animated and has its own personality. The coin has traveled here to meet you, and the, the, even even objects have a destiny right. in this in this movie. Right, exactly. The randomness of it, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. What strikes me about it is that. And I say this every time we talk about one of the Coen Brothers movies. I'm fully aware of that. But um, <clears throat> there's a there's a musicality to all of the dialogue in all of their movies. It's a it's a each movie's a little bit different, but there's always a rhythm and a way of speaking that is not quite natural, but somehow works beautifully. And they do the exact same thing here. But what surprised me was to learn how much of the dialogue is word for word taken from the novel, and yet they still maybe because of the casting and maybe because of the direction and just their sensibility, they, they were able to put their own stamp on it so that it still feels like a Coen Brothers original, even though it's their their first adaptation. Because they, they recognize when they read a source, when, when they read the source material, they recognize that this is something that, that, that fits into their own, that will fit their own voice really well. They did the same thing with True Grit. If you read the novel True Grit, a lot of that dialogue is taken verbatim from the book. Right. It wasn't in the original John Wayne movie. They 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 really ruined the the, the the version in the 1960s. But when they went back to the novel to to do the, the reboot, they or their own their own version of it, um, they 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 respected the source, and that's what they do. If they are going to adapt the source, and they don't very often do that, but when they do adapt the source, they really respect the source. There's a reason why they're drawn to it and they stick to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost as if when I first when I first picked up True Grit, I thought, and I realized that it was written in like 19 or in the late 1960s. It's like as if something that the Coen Brothers wrote when they were teenagers. It's yeah. something that a book that they could have written when they were teenagers. Yeah, the funny thing about them is that I remember early in their career, people would say about them that, you know, they're just they're just like you know copying genres. They're commenting on a genre like this is their film noir movie this is their gangster movie this is their western you know Mm. but that was sort of meant in a derogatory way now of course it's thought of in a um flattering way because they're they're so great with that but when they were kids and they were they're making movies in their backyard that is exactly what they did they would copy like a world war ii movie and they would try to make that and you know i think that they just have such an appreciation, and if you ask them this, by the way, they'll totally dodge the question. They won't say, "Oh no, we don't think we don't think about genres when we make movies," you know. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of clear to me that they do have a respect for that kind of genre, like the western, for instance, that True Grit is, you know. Um, but it's obviously done in their in their style, and I think of No Country for Old Men as a western, um, even though it's an, a mo- more modern western. It does take place in the West, and 
you know, you have guys on horses, you have people getting shot, you have, you know, these iconic figures throughout. But, um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that they, that when they pick something up or they're interested in something, they very much have a respect for the kind of framework that it's it's being placed in, the time and the place and the tone. You know? Absolutely, the time too is, is is is. But since um, No Country for Old Men is is so is so, um, it's in the recent past. You don't really think of it as a period piece, but it takes place in the in the 80s, and so you put that in the social. Uh, social political framework of the 80s and it, you can you can draw out all kinds of other meanings from it right like because the drug war was in the 80s mm-hmm. for instance yeah. and the, the book is a lot more about drugs than the movie the, um, the movie has a little bit of it you know and he says money and drugs you know but uh, but the movie pairs a lot of the book down like it really focuses very much on the kind of three men and what they what they stand for so tommy lee jones is the kind of the old school guy who is used to law and order the old-fashioned way um in the book it's very specifically the old-fashioned way and it's not that he's not capable or up to the task of handling the new kind of crime and the that's being brought into the state and then you have llewellyn moss and you have anton chigurh kind of on opposite sides and they're the movie very cleverly tracks them as mirror images of each other you know so you have these these paired scenes of like this is how he goes into a store and gets clothes this is how he goes into a pharmacy and gets the medical supplies Mm -hmm, he He builds a bomb he turns a car into a bomb and while the pharmacy's (laughs) exploding he goes in and takes whatever he wants and walks out you know and they show them doctoring up their wounds they show they show Llewellyn Moss at a motel hiding his money and they show Anton Chigurh coming to that motel and shooting people and killing people and it kind of works that way all throughout in in such a beautiful fashion and by the end um, you know you really do get the sense that 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 Anton Chigurh stands for death death itself chasing you and you can't there's not really much you can do about it when your number's up your number's up and it's random and it's unpredictable uh, and it's dark um, because that's why I think Anton Chigurh gets away in the end, even though he's hit unpredictably by a car when he's sideswiped, you know. But he does get away because he says to the kid, you did not see me. I was already gone, right? So he's just this, like, kind of ghost-like figure that moves through the movie. Ghost-like, and he also represents, he's a, he's a devilish kind of figure. He absolutely represents evil, and it, it's a message that you can never eradicate evil from the world. Right. Right? No matter, you might you might battle evil, and you might barely come out alive, and some people make it through their, their confrontation with evil, and some don't, but evil is always going to be around. Evil right. always endures. Signs and wonders. But I think once you quit hearing sir and ma'am, rest is soon to follow. Oh, it's a tad. It's the dismal tide. It is not the one thing. Not the one thing. Yeah, well, none of that explains your man, though. Uh-uh. He's just a goddamn homicidal lunatic yet, though. I'm not sure he's a lunatic. Yeah, well, what would you call him? Well, sometimes I think he's pretty much a ghost. I uh, ain't real, all right. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all of that over at the Eagle Hotel. <laughs> just beyond everything. Yeah. Got some hard bark on him. Well, that don't hardly say it. He shoots a desk clerk one day, walks right back in the next, and shoots a retired army colonel. It's hard to believe. Just strolls right back into a crime scene. Now, who'd do such a thing? 
How do you defend against it? Yeah. Good trip, Ed, Tom. Sorry we couldn't help you, boy. And it's often the flip side of good. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in a way, Llewellyn Moss isn't necessarily doing good. I mean, he stole money still. He's not mm -hmm. a bad guy. He's not an evil guy. But he's not necessarily a good guy. The good guy is Tommy Lee Jones. And he's way out of it. I mean, he's just not even... He's scrambling around after the action, you know? Just trying to make sense of it. Trying to make sense of it, and it's all moving way too fast for him. Yeah. And we talked about history of violence a couple of weeks ago, and that was 2005. And the beginning of history of violence with the, with the, with the two crooks in the motel, and they, they, they shoot up everybody, all the employees of the hotel before they leave, reminds me a lot of the beginning of No Country for Old Men, where you realize that you're dealing with monsters. You inter they introduced the monsters the first scene of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. They really do. And, um, and it's just the weird thing about movies that, like Norman Bates in Psycho or Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, as monstrous as Anton Chigurh is, you don't hate him because he's Javier Bardem and he's charming. That's the odd thing about the movie is you watch it, he sends a shiver down your spine, but at the same time you're... You're perplexed and a little confused because you like him. He makes you laugh in a way. Like, he's so monstrous, but he's funny at the same time with his haircut and the weird things he says, you know, and the way he's he compelling. walks. He's compelling. He's, he's charismatic. He's charismatic. He's, like, he's, the, kind of, he's the kind of criminal who, who, who's perfect for being a con man and for manipulating people because he's so charismatic. And you just don't end up hate. You don't hate him, actively yeah. hate him. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing he does, Javier Bardem, which is really strange, he completely transforms himself in this part. But one of the weird things he does is he walks without swinging his arms. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But whenever he walks down a hallway, his arms are just dead set against his sides. Mm. Uh, it makes him just look very, very creepy. Very hulking. He's almost like a golem. Yeah. I mean, like the, not, not, not like a golem from, from Lord of the Rings, but I mean the, the, the old German golems. Right. 1930 golem. So um, the movie opens with, you know, that great scene where he says, don't worry, Sheriff, I got it all under control. <laughs> like seconds later, the guy's got a thing around his neck and he's killing And from the very first scene, too, they do things that, that you realize that even though they're in for a really violent ride, the Coens do things where they show restraint and they, they are not, they don't force, they don't force you to look at things too much. I mean, you, you, you realize the violence of what's going on by seeing the guy's, the, the scuff marks of his boots on the floor more than you do his yeah. eyes bugging out, right? Right, right. And well, so that's why when people complain about the end of the movie that we wanted to see the violence at the end, well, you weren't, that's, that's not what the movie is about. The movie is not about just piling the violence on more and more and more. Sometimes the movie is about pulling away from the violence and having you imagine the violence. Well, that was the weird thing about 2007 was that um, as it was unfolding, I remember the first time the Coen brothers brought No Country to Cannes, and, and it, it, did, it was so well-reviewed. You know, they're just like, again, like Scorsese, you know, when you're at that level of your career and you turn in a movie that good, your chances of winning just immediately skyrocket, not necessarily because people are going, wow, this is Slumdog Millionaire. This is a movie that I love. It's more like... Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. Did you see the movie that Coen Brothers just made? I mean, it's like it, it, it tops. I'm not saying that The Departed tops all of Scorsese's other movies, but it was a damn good movie, and he was overdue. But No Country for Old Men, 
it really did seem to be the realization of the promise. It cashed the check of the Coen brothers as, you know, formidable, brilliant filmmakers in all of their movies leading up to No Country are fantastic. Fargo is a masterpiece. But there's something about No Country for Old Men that, that surpasses even Fargo. Um, and I'm not really sure exactly what it is. I've thought about it a lot over the years, and I think that it... It transcends because it's it stops being really funny. It's the only movie that they've made that um, isn't really funny, and I I do find humor in it because I love the movie so much. But but you could also read it as just a totally deadpan, very serious film. And and one of the parts, one of the ways it's serious, is how they handled the ending. This is really a statement movie. Um, I you could say Fargo was too in a way, but Fargo. It, it always kind of keeps that little wink going all the way. Oh, through. definitely. Fargo he, lets he, you. Fargo has a steam valve. Fargo lets. As so as when the pressure gets too hot and gets too gets too tight, Fargo lets off steam, and so you can relax and you can laugh and 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 stop being tense. Go ahead, Craig. I interrupted you. It's uh, just along the same lines of what Sasha was saying. I've been a fan of theirs since since um, Raising Arizona came out in 87. I've just been kind of crazy about them ever since. But even so, even after Fargo, and as much as I loved Fargo, and as much as of a leap forward Fargo seemed at the time, I don't think I was mentally prepared for what No Country for Old Men did. I just sat there in the theater after it was over, just kind of slack-jawed, just watching the credits, wondering what the hell I had just seen. Because it, it was definitely a Cohen film, but it, it felt like a whole other, more mature, more sober Cohen film than anything that I had ever been led to expect from them. Right. For one thing, too, after Fargo... The Coen's did The Big Lebowski and Old Brother Where Art Thou and The Man Who Wasn't There and Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, which are very much on the funny end of the range, the funny end of the spectrum, right? And so after those four four movies in a row after Fargo, you think, well, the Coen's are going more light. They're going more lighthearted. And that's why this came as such a shock when they 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 jumped to the opposite end of the spectrum where, the, like as Sasha said, there's you can find something to be kind of dark, a lot of dark humor in No Country, but you're never in any doubt that it's deadly serious. I knew this one done with. I ain't got the money. What little I had is long gone, and there's bills aplenty to pay it. I buried my mother today. Ain't paid for that, neither. I wouldn't worry about it. I need to sit down. You got no cause to hurt me. No. But I gave my word. You gave your word? To your husband. That don't make sense. You gave your word to my husband to kill me? Your husband had the opportunity to save you. Instead, he used you to try to save himself. Like that. Not like you say. 
don't have to do this. People always say the same thing. What do they say? They say, you don't have to do this. You don't. Okay. This is the best I can do. Call it. I know she was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what was in store for me. Call it. No. I ain't gonna call it. Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I got here the same way the coin did. Right, and and that was one of the things about the ending, because that was the big talk that year, believe it or not. It's so funny, because as I see No Country for Old Men settle into film history, I really do think of it as one of the top five best, best picture winners, and it will go down in history as that, I believe, like right up there with the best of the best, you know? And I think that, like Godfather, you know, it's, it's right up there with, with Godfather, in my opinion, as a great American film. But I remember at the time people saying, a lot of people, because there's just too many people talking about the Oscars, and there's too many people second-guessing the Academy, and too many people worrying about what they will do. And while it's true that, starting with Slumdog Millionaire and certainly the King's Speech and the Artist, they absolutely backed up their reputation by doing exactly what people said that they always do, which is vote for the sappy movie. But nonetheless, that, I thought, colored a lot of very knowledgeable and intelligent Oscar prognosticators big picture view of what No Country for All Men meant that year in film and what it meant for the Oscars and what it meant for the Coen brothers to finally win and how much the Academy loves the Coen brothers. So they wanted to give them an Oscar, just like they wanted to give Scorsese an Oscar. And, and by the way, that um, this is a, as an aside that I think the No Country for Old Men year that it won was the lowest rated Oscar year in history. And it's, it's to me, considered one of the best Oscar years. But that just goes to show you the, the, the disconnect between Oscar fans and people out there and movie fans and the critical community as to what everybody thinks is a really great movie. And the, the disconnect between really the top quality serious Oscar movies, and I didn't want to say Oscar movies, but just the top quality serious movies uh, that are pure um, masterpiece cinema, and the disconnect between that and the type of movies that people want to go see. And there's yeah. a direct connection between the Oscar night ratings and how many people have seen the movies that are nominated. And when you have right. Michael Clayton and There Will Be Blood and Atonement and No Country for Old Men nominated for Best Picture, those were not those were not movies that, that really, you know, blew people away at the box right. office. People weren't lining up to see those movies. Since they've expanded their Best Picture race, the the, um, the audience has been a lot more interested in the, in the Oscars because they've been able mm -hmm. to include movies that a lot of people have seen, and you have movies like Argo making $100 million and people seeing mm -hmm. them and loving Ben Affleck. And so you do see it kind of... Um, them sort of realizing what they hope to accomplish with that. Um, but let's just quickly talk about the ending. So the ending of No Country for Old Men has Llewellyn Moss, you know, saying, kind of saying goodbye to uh, his wife, sending her off 
um, to meet him later at a motel to get the money, and, and he's going to give her the money, and she's going to go off with it, and he's going to supposedly, in his mind, find and kill Anton Chigurh, right? Never going to happen. So the last time we see him is he's coming up to the motel. There's a woman sitting in a, um, a beach, you know, a lounge chair by the pool, and she's, like, kind of hitting on him, and she's like, you know, you want to come and drink with me? And he's like, nope. Um, he says, I'm just looking for what's coming. And she says, yeah, but you never see that beer that's what's coming the next shot is like sirens um tommy lee jones driving up to the motel uh he, there's like dead bodies in the pool all of the violence has already happened Luella moss is dead anton sugar has been there um he's totally left his mark and tommy lee jones of course because this is the whole theme of the book he gets there too late this is no country for old men because the old men can't keep up. They can't anywhere near keep up. So by the time he gets there to hopefully protect the person that he wants to protect, which is poor Llewellyn Moss, he's dead. So, you know, the movie starts with Tommy Lee Jones and it ends with Tommy Lee Jones. Yes, there's a lot of stuff with these characters in between, but this is his character arc, this movie. So for him to come on late and to find that, that, that is key to the, to the story and to the theme. So we see him come up to the door of the motel. He peers in. Anton Chigurh is somewhere staring at him in that scene, but you never really see him, I don't think, until... Um, you don't see him when Tommy Lee Jones is looking in. So, and then Tommy Lee Jones is kind of left to just sort of resign himself to, this is the end for him. This is the end of his law enforcement career. And now he's retired. And he's going to be with, you know, his wife. And he's just going to kind of sit around and think about how the world has changed. I mean, would you care to join me? Lord, no, I'm not retired. Maybe I'll help out here then. Uh, better not. How'd you sleep? I don't know. I had dreams. Well, you got time for them now. Anything interesting? There always is to the party concerned. And Tom, I'll be polite. All right, then. Two of them both had my father in them. It's peculiar. I'm older now than he ever was by 20 years. So, in a sense, he's the younger man. Anyway, the first one I don't remember too well, but it was about meeting him in town somewhere and he'd give me some money. I think I lost it. The second one, it was like we was both back in the older times and I was a horseback going through the mountains of the night going through this pass in the mountains. It was cold and there was snow on the ground. He rode past me and kept on going, never said nothing going by, just rode on past. He had his blanket wrapped around him and his head down. When he rode past, I seen he was carrying fire in a horn the way people used to do. And I, I could see the horn from the light inside of it, about the color of the moon. And in the dream, I knew that he was going on ahead. He's fixing to make a fire somewhere out there and all that dark and all that cold. And I knew that whenever I got there, he'd be there. And then I woke up. 
that monologue does not exist in the book. And we will, I was, will say, too, that at that point, that, that, at the point of the motel, it's where the book and the movie diverge. Up until that point, the, the movie has been very faithful following the events of the book um, uh, chronologically and, and matching, you know, chapter by chapter where the book went. But at that point, at the motel, the movie takes off in its own direction and leaves the book behind. Not because that it leaves it behind necessarily, but takes it off to where the Coens wanted, had a different message than, than, than McCarthy had. Well, because he's got, doesn't he, he hooks up with a young girl in the book. He's got some young girl that he's protecting, Llewellyn, Llewellyn Moss, like a teenager. Mm-hmm, right, and exactly, yeah. And it, which would, would, for one thing, it would have complicated the, the movie in ways that were too strange, I think. And and also, this is not the direction the Coens wanted to go with it. Right. They, they wanted to focus, as you said, on the, on the, on the triangle of the three men. So they allude to this idea of a woman hitting on him because it is nice in the book how he doesn't sleep with the teenager. You know, he's yeah. he's mm-hmm. a good man and that's important to the story. But but that is a whole superfluous direction that they were smart to leave out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean that that just spoke to what a good person Llewellyn Moss was. Right. You know. Uh, another thing too about I remember people see this was my first year on the site and I was really unprepared for the way that people were going to jump from movie to movie that when Juno first premiered everybody was just so infatuated with Juno they thought Juno was going to run away with everything and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking you got to be kidding me please don't please no God no don't let that happen but people would just jump from movie to movie and then Atonement came out in December and it was the same thing I think Sasha you and I even got the screener for Atonement on the same day and we both watched it the same afternoon and we emailed each other like halfway through the movie and we thought uh oh this is going to be a threat but then the next day we were like what are were we thinking it's not a threat but right. we were worried that one day because it, we knew how we know how people can jump from movie to movie but when looking back on it now i think part of the reason why people were skeptical about no country winning is because of the ambiguity because they know from experience that the oscars the academy does not like ambiguity especially in the endings of their movies they like for things to be explained yeah. and clear cut they like to see what's happening and they like for things to be tied up in nice right. nice bows at the end right that's right and a lot of people chris tapley being one of the most prominent of these said that it could not win because of that that there was no way, no. First of all, he did not like the movie at all, mm. but he also said that he didn't think that uh, it had a chance to win because of that weird ending. And I thought it was so funny, and I still think it's funny that people were getting so bogged down in something that was so deliberate. Like, if you want to talk about something ruining a movie, you can talk about something that's sloppy and um, unintentional. But that was intentional by the Coens. You know, it was very mm. intentional, and it was like a I... thematic choice, and it's a difficult thematic choice. But I felt that it was, again, one of those years. It was like The Departed. It was like The Hurt Locker for me. And, I, again, I'm not to sound like a broken record, and I've only had three of these years, and they were great years. But, you know, I knew that nothing could beat No Country for Old Men. There was just no way. Nothing was going to. It was like winning everything. Juno was the closest. It came to there being a threat, but... I wanted to be that confident, but I was so sick to my stomach on Oscar night because I, I was so shaken up by what I had seen happen in the previous three or four months. I was, I saw There Will Be Blood as a threat because, for one thing, they had an equal number of nominations. I think they were both No Country and There Will Be Blood were both nominated in eight different categories, and so yeah. they're, they're well-matched there. And also, there was such a huge fan base outpouring for Paul Thomas Anderson, and I thought that he also, in a way, was due in the same way that the Coen brothers were due. And and I, I was really worried because it was making me sick because I remembered how I had been like an early supporter of, of There Will Be Blood. And I didn't really know the, the etiquette of the Oscars. I think, that, I think what it was was There Will Be Blood premiered at the Austin um, 
the Austin Film Festival, yeah, mm-hmm. South by Southwest down there. It was a surprise screening. I think they sprung it on everybody. Nobody was expecting it to screen. You had already gone to bed that night, Sasha, but when the reviews came out in Austin that night, people were raving about it, and I posted something online overnight. I think I said something stupid like, there will be Oscars. And when you woke up in the morning to see that, you said, change that headline. We don't say that in September about movies that nobody has seen except one screening at a festival. And so I was afraid that if there will be blood somehow managed to eke out a win that I was going to be, I was just going to be mortified that I had blundered. <laughs> well, that, first of know? all, movies like that don't, definitely don't win Oscars. I right. Mean, I just see that now. Like but no I was country so, barely I didn't know what Oscars, was going on back but then. People, but movies like There Will Be Blood do not win. Not, not with that. Right. It, it might no. have had a chance except for that, the last bowling ball scene in the bowling ball room. Like that was the, the thing that, prevented that movie from winning best picture um if they had if that had been a redemption scene where he came and cried mm-hmm. and this and that and then I will maybe say too but... even the things like i'll drink your milkshake things when things become a joke and become something to mock and laugh about and they're a catchphrase that people like like you know like tease and, and use frivolously that's a that's a that kills the seriousness of of the movie i think i don't think and not that it damaged the movie in my eyes another thing though that hurt there will be blood is it only made eight million dollars i mean not only eight million dollars Pre pre nomination, it only had earned eight million dollars. It was a good movie, but but again, those those performances were so over the top that mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that usually will block you from winning. Um, but it doesn't really matter because it was still it still came really really close, a lot closer than I ever thought it would, and it won Oscars, it won Best Actor, and it won Cinematography. So they definitely liked that movie. A lot of people really really loved it. So it definitely since, came a lot closer. Cinematog- than I Go ahead, I'm sorry. I didn't think it would even get that close myself, but, but, um, but it, it is. It's. I mean, if you want to talk about that movie now, we can. You guys can. No, I was just going to say that when when it won cinematography, since that's one of the first earlier first of the evening awards, I I was really. That's when I really started to sweat. I really thought that that was going to be the beginning of the end for No Country, when because we were all so certain that Roger Deakins was going to win for one of the movies that he had that year. It was either and going to course, be No Country or Roger Deakins has still not won an Oscar, and he should have won that year. But they really did like. Uh, like no country i mean like there will be blood enough to to not give roger deakins another oscar for cinematography which was and i do think too that probably the fact that he was up against himself for for the um assassination of jesse james by the coward robert ford i think that is bound to hurt i ordinarily don't go in for the idea that 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 nominees can cancel each other out but when it's the same guy or do different movies then it really can yeah um, it was a weird. It was a weird night for me because it had been <clears throat> probably thirty years since a movie that I thought was genuinely the best movie of the year won. Actually, won for best Oscar. And so I, I, I it, it, my brain just wouldn't accept the fact that that could possibly happen. I'd so. I had so dismissed the taste of the Academy for so long that it just didn't even seem like an option. And if There Will Be Blood had one, it, to me it would have been a relief because the alternative would have been Atonement, Junior, Juno, or Michael Clayton. Those would have been, to me, disasters. So even though No Country for Old Men, I, I love it way much more than There Will Be Blood, I, There Will Be Blood would have felt like a victory to me if it had won. 
Because mm -hmm. I just it it seemed inconceivable to me that the stodgy old Oscars would actually go for something brilliant like No Country for Old Men. Well, that's what we know about the Oscars too. Is that so much about the timing, and that's why they timed the Oscar contenders to come out in December and, and January because they're counting on Oscar voters to become infatuated with the movie. Uh, no Country had been out since it had premiered at, at, at Cannes in May, and so it had been talked about for months and months and months. Usually, a movie can almost run out of steam or wear itself out over that course of the year, especially when a really hot thing comes along like Juno, which was winning a lot of awards and getting a lot of attention because Diablo Kobe, Diablo Kobe is such a, you know, uh, publicity hog, and for a various, not, you know, I'm not I'm not to say that against her. I mean because you know more power to her. But at the same time, I just saw it as just a really flimsy thing for people to be rallying around. But it, it was scary to me because I didn't know what was going on. That in 2007, it was my first year. Yeah, I know. That's what I was gonna say. I was like, I, I should have just said, "Chill out. Don't worry. It's not. Don't worry about it. No country's got this." It's but it's so good you let. It was like trial by fire. By fire, you let me go through it and figure things out on my own instead of. You did give me a lot of guidance, though. You gave me. It was sometimes it was kind of like, like kind of like you know really stern guidance, and I really needed it. I really appreciated it. But um, um, and it was something you'd have to learn on your own. My favorite was when people. Um, people thought atonement was going to win actually that they really did think mm -hmm. because it won didn't it win the um the golden globe for best picture that year it won the sounds like yeah i think it did i think you're right about that so people thought some people thought i'm going to see if i can pull up the predictions here if i can that mm -hmm. um people really did think that it was going to uh win and and some people were still clinging to the idea that no country wasn't going to win as i recall but it won the golden globe and it did really well at the baftas so it had a lot of heat at the time that the oscars came along it had a lot of heat right and it would seem to be the kind of epic that uh they people could make the argument that academy voters would go for but the problem with atonement uh, didn't have a best director nomination for one thing and that was a big deal back then with five mm -hmm. Yeah. With five Best Picture nominees, not having a Best Director nomination makes a big, big difference. If you have ten nominees or nine nominees, like with when Argo didn't get a Best Director, it just didn't seem to matter. Like, no one cared. But if you have five, it, it did matter more, which is probably why there hadn't been, since Driving Miss Daisy, a, a film to win without uh, a Director nomination. But... Um, but that was Atonement's one big problem. Its other big problem is it wasn't a crowd pleaser. It was depressing as hell. <laughs> and I think another, one other thing about Atonement is that it was a bait-and-switch kind of movie. It had to be because you don't, can't give away the ending of that movie. But a lot of people from the advertisements and from their expectation of seeing um, whatever her name is and, and, and the, the, the two leads in the world, they thought it was going to be a romance, and it's anything but. Right, and you, and when it hits you at the end that it's anything but a romance, it pulls the rug out from under people in a way that I think um, disappointed a lot of people. It's not the kind of movie that you recommend to your friends, like, oh, you've got to go see this sweet movie on date night, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Right, and and I'm looking at the predictions chart, and strangely enough, almost everybody went for No Country except Scott Feinberg, who famously went for Juno. And Anthony Bresnikin and Sam Rubin, all three went for Juno. Only Stephen Holt went for uh, Atonement. So it didn't. Everybody went for the Coens. Uh, Sam Rubin thought Jason Reitman was going to win for. He must not have liked No Country for Old Men. You see how, even still, even in the face of all this predictability, people really. Some people thought that it was too hard. It was too dark. That the Academy would never go for it. But of course, they did. Um, 
I'm proud to say I only got one thing wrong that year, and that was Ruby D for Best Supporting Actress. That was a really hard year to predict when Tilda Swinton won for um, Michael Clayton. Only a couple of people got that prediction right. Most people were predicting Kate Blanchett, who should have won for I'm Not There, and Ruby D for American Gangster, who also would, would have been a good choice. I love Tilda Swinton, but I don't think she was a good choice for Michael Clayton to win that. I'm really glad that Tilda Swinton won because she has deserved to win so many times before and since. Yeah. But I, I, it was it can't have. I, I wonder how that how a lot of Academy members took that when she announces from the podium that she's going to give her Oscar away as soon as she steps down off the stage. She's going to. She it means so little to her that she's going to give it to her agent. <laughs> you know. She's great. I love. Tilda I know she's fantastic. <laughs> that was the weirdest Oscar win that Michael Clayton Tilda Swinton Oscar win. Like to me, it was it really, just I, I spoke. To, I was able to speak to her. I think when she did I, I Am Love, I spoke to her on the phone and I asked her about that about the Oscar night. I said, Is that really right i said surely you didn't give your oscar away surely you took it home with you and she's told me she said no i wanted it to live in america i wanted my oscar to live in america yeah, i thought that's so good cool for her. she's so awesome she gets the big picture <laughs> she knows how meaningless it all is here you take it you gotta love you really no you can have it <laughs> That's fantastic. But can it be true that Kate Blanchett really lost for Oh no, she was she was nominated for for Elizabeth the Golden Age and and I'm not there really. I know, I know. She it's didn't win for I'm not there. That's incredible to me that she didn't win for that. That was that was like one of the best performances I've ever seen an actor give male or female, lead or supporting and she didn't win. I mean, that's shocking. Mm -hmm. no. That shows you how little the establishment thought of that movie, which is terrible on them. Yeah, that's true. It's partly that, and it's partly that she'd already won recently, semi-recently, for The Aviator. And Apparently, according to Dave Carger, who said that they, the Academy really liked Michael Clayton and they wanted to give it something, and that's why it ended up with that supporting win. Mm -hmm. She's great in it, of course, but it's by no means the best of the five, and it's no, no nowhere near her best performance, you know. I would say she's the only thing about Michael Clayton that I really enjoy. She's the only thing that's compelling about that movie. I, the Michael Clayton is a movie that I did not like at all. In fact, I, I almost walked out of it. I, I've, I've, seen, I've, I've become, I've changed my attitude about it since I've seen it a couple more times since then. But when I first saw it, I thought, oh no, this is just. It seemed like it was so. It was so much of a play for the Oscar. It's exactly like it's what it, I'll tell you what it was. It was like a director who thinks he's going to make a, a, a movie that, re, that is reminiscent of the 70s, of the of the Hollywood golden age, because he thinks he's going to tap into that demographic in the Oscars, and that's exactly what what Affleck did. Yes, absolutely. And so there's so many directors like that. And it's so funny because I'm always marveling at how many times they give a director like this an at bat. To, to do something like that and they never give mm -hmm. the same to women it's like women have to jump through hoops and go through you know all kinds of crazy shit to get movies made where there's this guy tony gilroy or whatever it's like he'll be making movies till the end of time you know he'll always be given that opportunity with mm -hmm. no trouble at all you know and part of that is because he can make that kind of movie that generic sort of you know sydney lumet knockoff you know. mm -hmm. Exhaust. That's such a great way to to sum him up. That's that's perfect. And he's so he's so workmanlike. I mean, that's another adjective that fits him really well. I think he can. He's reliably workmanlike. Mm -hmm. He can just churn it out and make sure that it, it comes in on schedule and there's no overruns and and the, it's on bud it's on budget and everything yeah. and and makes a fair amount of money and and he's just reliable. And it's a liberal cause movie because it's yep. anti health. Mm -hmm. You know the health 
care uh, industry, you know. So it had a liberal concept to your typical Hollywood Oscar movie, as Michael Clayton. <laughs> it's yeah. like textbook, you know. That that's exactly the kind of movie that they like. If so I want to give my, sometimes I think that that the way that a movie like No Country Can Win, and and the way that a movie, the way that movies in the 1970s were able to win, is because there was no easy out for the Academy. All five nominees, except for Juno, which was too frivolous, I think, to ever win, except for Juno, I think all of the other five nominees were really deeply serious movies. They had a really serious intent. And so the, but I wonder, if I want to give myself nightmares, I think, what if the King's Speech had been up against No Country for Old Men? <laughs> or what if the artist had been up against oh, No Country for Old it. Men? They, I'm afraid that a certain <laughs> number of the Academy voters would have flocked to that movie because it was easier. You know, yeah, it would have been simpler no, and, and tidier for them. That's why I'm looking at this year in kind of an interesting, as an interesting year, because there isn't, so far anyway, there isn't one of those movies. Um, mm -hmm. There might exactly. be, but right now there isn't. And that could mean that we have a real race on our hands. It could mean that David Fincher and Gone Girl might actually finally win, because there isn't going to be some sappy little movie that could that takes over. That was this year. Right, mm -hmm. Juno. Juno was. Are, are we, I guess we're not going to be counting. I, I mean, we're not. I'm, we're gonna. We're not going to put Unbroken in that category as as being the easy Oscar movie, right? Because I, we haven't seen it yet, and so we don't know how really tragic and serious and it's going to really be. I hope it's really good, and I would. Love I hope to it's see really good win, too. And I have no problem with. Her I, I keep hearing people who haven't read the book dismissing it just based on what they know of it. But having read the book, I think if she does a good job of directing it, then it has a real shot at, at least being in the conversation. But I'm, I'm, my instincts in that regard have never been any good. So. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I hope that. I mean, I have 100% confidence in her. I don't think she's built up enough cred. She's not. Catherine Bigelow, and I think that um, misogyny is going to ultimately derail her. But um, we'll see. Maybe she'll she'll surprise everybody and and overcome all of that. But when you're heading into the race, and you know you want to have at least some clout, right? You, I mean, I mean, obviously the funny thing about that is that you don't if you're an actor. You can be Kevin Costner and make Dances with Wolves and win. You can be Robert Redford and make Ordinary People and win. Uh, you don't have to have. You can be Ben Affleck, although he even he, even he had built up by then a pretty good, solid body of work. And she's only directed one movie, so there might be the idea that as good as Unbroken is, she might need to build up a little more clout, a little more street cred before she finally pulls in a big win, especially up against something like David Fincher, maybe or. You know, well, so yeah, not only David Fincher, but Mike Lee and Chris Nolan and Bennett Miller and exactly. and um, and uh, some just. Hello? Whoops. Is anybody there? Hello? Are you guys there? Yeah, I got got cut off, but now I'm back. Oh, okay, yeah, it's just my thing totally shut off. I didn't hear either. Mine did too. My Skype shut down, and then it had to reconnect. Weird. So anyway, I wasn't going to say anything important. I was just saying that not only does she have to to jump the hurdle of of of, of being a woman, but she's also not just up against any old guy. She's up against some really really amazing guys. Yeah, and, and they would all be supportive of her if she. 
Yeah. If she really did make that movie, and you know, she's got Roger Deakins in her corner, so that's a good thing right out uh, mm-hmm. front. And she's got the good subject matter, and she, she's put her work behind the things that she's most interested about. Um, but let's get back to this year. We can definitely talk more about well, it. Yeah, one the way we can segue into this year, you mentioned Ben Affleck. This was the year that he um, uh, did Gone Baby Gone. So it was the first time that we realized that he was actually capable of directing, or doing a really great job directing a movie. Gone Baby Gone was excellent movie, I think. Yeah, very dark. Surprised everybody. It definitely did. It was um, a little too dark, again, for, for these kind of voters like they seem to really like him doing Argo that's made them mm-hmm. very happy you know but um but Gone Baby Gone was a little more challenging you know the town was less challenging and Argo was less challenging than that but uh Gone Baby Gone was kind of considered dark he, he was given a little bit of a hard time for it I think like they thought it, maybe it was too high of a reach um, right I think it was it was one of those movies that's almost um self-consciously artsy yeah, like you're you're a guy, the director who realizes he's he wants to make a big artistic splash, and I think that that is sometimes that's the way that I look regard Paul Thomas Anderson sometimes. Not as if I believe that it's, that's his motivation, but it's sometimes I think that's the way he's perceived that he's a little bit too self consciously artsy, artistic. Whereas someone like the people like the Coen Brothers are just naturally artistic. They're not they they do they seem to do it effortlessly, and people don't like to see a director sweat or try too hard. Thing about the Coens that that you know a lot of people forget is that they've been making movies all their lives, and they've been making. They were, they went through a lot of years where people did not take them seriously and did not think they thought they were pretentious. They thought they copied other people's style. You know, um, their movies were flat out. Miller's Crossing is a movie that has no Oscar nominations, zero. I know, it's so unbelievable. It's not like they were and how about Barton Fink? I'm, I'm, I'd be surprised if Barton Fink has many nominations. I don't know. It doesn't. It has a palm door though, so the Oscars can kiss it. Right, and that's where they get the reputation of being a little bit um, elitist, is because once you win a palm door, it's like the, the Oscars look at you like, who do you think you are? Well, didn't they? Or win they for can Fargo? sometimes. They won for Fargo too, I think. Oh, okay, the screenplay yeah. for Fargo, yeah, that was that was where they where people first started taking notice of them and taking them seriously. No, I mean, didn't it win the palm? Uh, no, I don't think it did. Fargo. Um, but, but yeah, no, the Academy, it took them a while to, to gain cred in the industry. They were so kind of outsiders doing their own thing. They don't um, play the game at all. They're, they're, they're East Coast, and they, you don't see them doing the publicity circuit. As, as sick to my stomach as I was th- throughout Oscar night that, that evening, to finally have it the culmination happened when the when the Coen brothers do win and they stay on stage for about 30 seconds and barely speak. That was it was really anticlimactic. I, I would I had it's hard for me to recover from that because I had so much pent up tension and then to just I just wanted to see them jumping around on the stage I guess more. But that's not what they do. Well, they don't. Care I about- love that. I love that they just were kind of oh yeah this happened because that's the oh, way yeah. they that's the way they acted in leading up to it. That maybe inside they felt differently, but they. They were never dismissive of it. They seemed to be genuinely pleased that they were being accepted on this stage, but at the same time, it wasn't going to change them. They weren't going to suddenly do anything differently than they had done before. They mm-hmm. were still the still the Coen oh, brothers. I think if you're like in the too. industry and you're somebody like them or you're somebody, you know, Scorsese was kind of the exception to this, but I think it's sort of like you think... Um, you know, it's sort of a backhanded compliment in a way when you get finally get approval. And I imagine this is what David Fincher will be going through. Is sort of like, 
now you guys like our work all of a sudden you know it's sort of like and we're supposed to forget about all those years when it just wasn't good enough for the academy and when you guys were yeah not that they think that way but I, i would imagine that they probably think of it as if i didn't pay attention to them when i was losing why should i pay attention to them now when i'm winning it's sort of like measuring your success vis-a-vis what these people think of you is an awkward position to be in if you're somebody like them when you're you're just really thinking and you're you're intelligent and you're trying to make movies for a different reason than than winning awards yeah it would have been nice probably to have won or even be acknowledged in the past they probably like that because it means they got more clout and they can make more movies and they get more money and all that but i always get the feeling that with some filmmakers, with a lot of filmmakers, the last thing they want to do is get up on stage and give those people a blowjob. You know what I mean? Right, right. right. Uh-huh. That's all I mean. Especially, especially directors. Actresses and actors do it a little bit more often, a little bit more frequently, but directors do not. They don't play that game, and I respect them for that. And I do think part of it, too, is that a lot of directors, especially like Fincher and like the Coens, they don't have a public persona. You don't see them on talk shows, so you don't know who they are. And so it would be it would be jarring and insincere in a way for them to suddenly be gushing on stage, right? Because you don't you know they're not like that. Right. You know so that they're not the gushing types. You think of the people who do gush and, and they have good reasons. Danny Boyle um, um, Slumdog Millionaire kind of came out of nowhere. They, everybody thought it was going to go to video. So every time they won, it was like, holy fucking shit, we won. You know, mm-hmm. it was genuine surprise. And I think with Catherine Bigelow, her career had been on the skids for so many years that when she finally did find success, she was grateful by that point, you know. But the Coens, neither of those things are true about them. They've just been steadily nose to the grindstone working hard for decades and making great movies. And that's what they like to do is make movies... I think that they're too smart to get caught up in, I'm only going to make this movie if these, this 6,000 people like what I do. You know? mm-hmm. I guess that's what I was trying to say before I bungled it, but what I meant to say, I, I wasn't disturbed or bothered by the fact that they didn't make more of a big deal about winning, but it was disconcerting to me because I had never seen them speak publicly before. And so I thought, finally, I'm going to get a chance to see these guys, be, see what they're like, see what they're like in person, because I've never seen that before. And I didn't get to. They didn't give. They didn't give that. They didn't give that out. And so I was, it was just disconcerting. That's Wait till you wasn't... see them at a Q and A. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're just like that. Right. They're just like Ethan's a little more chatty than than Joel, but they're. Um, you know, they're they're definitely don't suffer fools. Those guys, like they do not. You know, a lot of people when they get a silly question or a question that's a little bit off base or it's off kilter, they will play along and they will try not to make the person who's asking the question feel bad. But the coins don't care; they will absolutely tell you that you're dead wrong, right? You, just, you've experienced just, that. What they are is honest. Like they're, yeah. they're they don't want to be assholes. Like Tommy Lee Jones, I get the feeling he likes to kind of be an asshole. You know, <laughs> he likes to say <laughs> things that make people feel uncomfortable and, and embarrass yeah. them a little bit in an interview. I, I got that from him when I was at the press conference, just a little bit, because he probably has just seen it all, you know, and these sycophantic people probably get on his nerves so bad. Mm-hmm. But the Coens are more like, they're just kind of themselves. Like they don't put on airs and they don't try to make you like them. And, and you know, if, if something you're saying they don't agree with, they'll tell you, but they don't go the extra mile to make you like them the way actors do, for instance, Yeah. Know? like Ben Affleck, like how he has to charm everybody in the room, everybody. He has to literally touch palms with everybody and make them like him. That's important to him that people like him, but it's not important to the Coens that people like. I him. think Tom Hooper was like that when he was on the the um, yeah. the um, 
panels and press junkets and everything. He was a storyteller and a raconteur, and all, and he actually just actively flirted with with the Oscar members, I think. Yeah, and then behind the scenes, he was a total asshole, apparently. Right. Notorious. I was actually surprised at how polite and um, non-snobby and just sort of approachable the Coens are, because I was... I was the scariest 10 minutes of my life was interviewing them for True Grit, and it's because these I've worshipped them my entire life, and I have this enormous amount of respect for them, and they've always come off in the interviews that I'd seen them with a little bit prickly, and so I didn't want to go in there and be stupid and have them dismiss me, but I was surprised even before the interview began at how, you know, they weren't sucking up, they weren't, you know, kissing my ass or anything, but they were just reasonable, interesting, normal people, and they, they didn't seem yeah. to be bothered to be having to go through this horrible thing of being interviewed by all these different people, and they just... I, I, I was I was taken aback at how how decent and cool they were. They're just normal, but they're not, they're not going to win any popularity contests, but they're normal people, you know, like at this mm-hmm. party I went to with them, everybody kept walking up to um, poor Ethan, like, according to the publicist, and he's right, he said... I said to the publicist, I said, is this, is this the Cohen's nightmare, this party? And he said, it's Ethan's nightmare for sure. And, mm. and it's true. Ethan, though the nice one, was definitely sitting in the corner cowering and didn't want to talk to anybody. Just not in a mean, snobby way, but just in a, I'm shy. I can't deal with this kind of way, you know? Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. Joel was Mr. Chatty. Like he was, everybody was walking up to him and talking to him. And he just would just, he would talk to anybody who came up. So he's nice and everything, but what I mean is they're not, they don't go the extra mile to make you like them. You know, they're never going to be that guy, those guys that do that. But they're nice. They're good people. They're, they're I think that's what I liked about them, though, because it's so obvious when people are doing that, that they're just trying to win you over. And they weren't really having any of that. And I, I, I appreciated that. I, I understood where they were coming from. And, and I think I kind of felt like we were all on the same page and it just was a good a good non-nerve-wracking experience. I think in a one-on-one, it's probably a little bit different than when you're at a Q&A or when you're, you know, they're being right. bombarded by people. They Speaking of which, I think you, that year, Shasha, didn't you have a, um, you had an interview with Todd Haynes, didn't you? An embarrassing and it was a, It was an extended interview. It wasn't just a short 10 minutes. It was a long time you got to speak to him. No, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to do the Cohen one, because... It's hard for me to be around people I admire, and I definitely humiliated myself around Todd Haynes that year. Humiliated, like. Oh no, I can't believe that. No, it's true. I, I have to cop to it. It was, it was yet another example of what happens to me when I'm around somebody I really, really admire. And God forbid I should ever meet Bob Dylan in person because it'll be so <laughs> ugly. But it See, was Sasha ugly. says that, but I witnessed one of her supposed meltdowns in front of Todd Haynes, and it wasn't anything of the kind. It was oh, a really sweet, nice moment. Oh God, no! And he was—he was—he, he clearly enjoyed it. It was humiliating, but he was great, and I loved that movie beyond, beyond, beyond. And I was disappointed to see that it didn't do as well. But I think that, for the same people who say I don't like Bob Dylan because of the way he sings, those are the kind mm-hmm. of people that aren't going to ever going to get. I'm not there. And if you're a major Bill- Dylan fanatic like I am, like major as in he's part of your DNA, then you're going to love. I'm not there because every moment in that movie is part of a Dylan song. And it's made by somebody who knows and loves Bob Dylan as much as I do and as much as, like, really intense fans do. Not in the weird, like, his songs mean this and that and this and that, but more like I 
admire and appreciate his music so much and all the characters that flood throughout it and all the different identities he's been and all the ways that he has been mistaken for a deity and and in I'm Not There it was kind of like Todd Haynes being a huge fan of Dylan just made this incredible beautiful abstract art this portrait of this man and fucking Kate Blanchett off the charts brilliant that is probably one of the biggest Oscar injustices that she didn't win I would have to say I don't know why I didn't write about this, but I should have. That was a huge one. I mean, we forget so much about what happened in a year when we're focusing on Best Picture because you think about I'm Not There and how Todd Haynes just, you know, up to the game and, you know, just really broke the mold when he made that movie. And yet it was almost completely ignored by these people. Uh, and also Zodiac. If we can talk about that a little bit. That was in the 2007. Zodiac is really more surprising. I'm Not There... Is almost it's it's too almost too art house for the Oscars, but Zodiac you would think would be right in the Oscar wheelhouse. Yeah, and it was completely <laughs> shut out, not one it, Oscar. It was even talked up as being in in the conversation. I think when it, when it was completely snubbed, even at the time, it was it was kind of a surprise. Everybody kind of thought this is this is Fincher's year finally. He's made the big serious picture that Oscar can finally get a hold of, and yet yeah, and it was the most critically acclaimed film of the year. And uh, it was incredibly dark, beautiful, epic Zodiac. Um, and for some weird reason, it just it didn't even get a cinematography nomination, which is astonishing, right? Mm-hmm, unbelievable. That it didn't even get cinematography. So um, I don't know what the deal is with them. I mean, it's possible that they just don't like him, that they just don't like David Fincher, you know, for whatever reason. They think he came from video. They think he's the video guy, you know, and that he's... Surely people don't still think that. But, I mean, maybe they did in 2007. I don't know. I think there is a definite... There's a, something about his movies that they carry a chill. They're not huggable movies at all. And even though we were talking about the fact that No Country for Old Men is really harsh and deadly and bleak and dark, it's also has warmth about it. And sometimes it's, it's, very hard, human. To, it's hard to hard to get a handle on the warmth in some of David Fincher's films, and I like that about him, but I'm not sure that a lot of Oscar, some of the older Oscar members might not like that. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. I think that's a really good point, because like you say, No Country is, is dark and a little bit depressing, but it's very human. It makes you feel things, whereas Zodiac just kind of, for me, it just kind of unsettles me, it, it, it because it's it's open ended and it, it the the nobody they never catch the bad guy and it's just kind of this weird obsession and it 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 kind of leaves you feeling cold and for me that's not a bad thing i don't mind that it's like i, I like that feeling it's like a, a chill um but it's not the kind of movie that that people are going to embrace no it's mm-hmm. weird because he kind of has two different movies that he makes he makes these long kind of rambling films like Zodiac and like Benjamin Button and possibly Seven and then he makes these really tight movies like Social Network you know that are just like boom 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 you know like he, he kept mm-hmm. editing that down and down and down and down until it was just this perfectly honed diamond you know they just don't like people who are too good that's one of their things mm-hmm. is they like you if you're good just not too good unless it's a, an instance like these movies that come along every so often like no country for old men where it's just unequivocal like it's so good that there's nothing they can really say or do they just have to resign themselves to voting for the film 
It's undeniable. And it's also, again, I don't to reiterate what I was trying to say earlier to simplify it a little bit, is they didn't really have any other easy movie to retreat to. They had no other easy movie that they could go for. Atonement itself was really dark and bleak. If Atonement wins Best Picture, and that goes down in history as the movie where everybody on screen for the whole movie, it turns out that they're dead, and it's all been imaginary, and then it's just that's, that's a strange thing to win Best Picture. It's not going to happen. Never. No, there wasn't. I think if Michael Clayton had had a happy ending, that it would have had a shot. I know none of you, neither of you liked the movie very much, but that's to me it, it just because it was such clear cut Oscar bait that the only thing it got wrong was the sort of bleak ending where he's just kind of stunned riding along in the taxi and then it ends. Yeah, but there always has to be that one extra thing that, that pushes people over the edge. It either has to be. They loved the movie so much, and that gets their heart vote. Or they love the directors so much, and that that pushes them through. And I think in No Country's case, it was probably more of the latter. It was probably more of, it's finally time to give these guys a fucking Oscar, you know? And mm-hmm. I know that was the case with Scorsese, and probably with Catherine Bigelow, it's time to give a woman an, uh, a, you know, an Oscar. Um, that's a really powerful motivator, and there always has to be a motivator. And Michael Clayton had none. If it had been, even if it had been Robert Altman directing it, it would have had to be, you know, a lot better to win. Yeah, that would have been so cruel if Michael Clayton had won doing a uh, um, a Sidney Lumet knockoff when Sidney Lumet himself never won an Oscar. They that would have been have. like such cruel, sick irony. I wouldn't have. It would have been just too disturbing to yeah. see. And Sidney Lumet had that very year before The Devil Knows You're Dead, which was awesome, and everybody hates it. Mm-hmm. Right, I know. Uh, the only movie that had the tiniest chance was Juno, and that's because it did have that feel-good thing about it. But um, I'm sorry to have to say this out loud, but they just don't like Jason Reitman, and they certainly didn't like Diablo Cody. I mean, they gave her the Oscar and everything because they had to, but there was a lot of kind of, you know, sort of snide uh, reaction to her. None of us, I mean, I, I appreciate her now because she's a female, and, but, you know, a screenwriter who's battling this hard world but you know um jason reitman he i'm sorry i drunkenly apologized to him and told him i was proud of him humiliatingly for labor day yes that happened <laughs> but he's still because it seemed like for he was trying to get away from the kind of things that he had done it seemed like that they were so so that he was playing to to the choir so much, yeah, you know, he's, he's trying, trying to do something to different. Stretch himself a little bit, and the problem yeah. with him is they look at him and they go, "Yeah, give me a break, Ivan Reitman's son, please. You had your whole career handed to you on a platter. You know, I'm not going to respect you until you make something as good as the fucking Godfather. You know, it's mm-hmm. I didn't know that good. about him. I didn't have any any conception of what he was like that year, but it became really apparent when he won a couple of things, because when, when you see him on stage, you, his his attitude, his personality is comes is crystal clear, yeah. and it didn't he didn't make a good impression. He doesn't. He's another one who you know again his life, he needs a lot more life experience before he can be a really good storyteller, or he needs to make a lot more movies. Success like this is not going to come easy for him. He's going to have mm. to really really do like make, make Platoon or something like that. You know, it's like. And he might win someday if he makes a movie like Platoon. But he's not going to win with Juno, you know, not a chance. So there, there wasn't a feel-good enough story there with Juno. Um, so there was only one choice. That's the way to, to have the Academy do the right thing is don't give him a choice. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> no, if they have no other alternative, they will finally they will finally have no other alternative but to do the right thing. And that's the great thing about having five nominees versus nine, because with nine you have so many great movies vying for the prize that, you know, you have. Um, you know, you have Zero Dark Thirty the same year as you have Lincoln and the same year as you have, you know, it's like these these incredible movies, there's too many of them. So people often gather around the lowest common denominator in, in that instance. And the lowest common denominator gets lower and lower the more nominees you have, you know. Whereas with five, it's a little easier to rally around the one. Plus, you're dealing with a weighted ballot. So everybody can throw their support around no country. You don't have to worry about this weird preferential shit. Of, is it going to be number one or number two or, you know. Because it's just a plain old weighted ballot. The most votes gets the winner. So those kind of races are a lot easier to predict how they're going to go. You know, um, That yeah. year was an easy year to predict because they're, like, we're going through them and you can see there really was no other choice for the win. And another thing we should mention, and not that, the, not that, not that it, the country probably would have won anyway even without this, but it was a Weinstein film. It was, no, it was, it was Miramax. It was Scott Rudin. Oh, okay. Was, yeah. Okay, right. Miramax had been sold by then, hadn't it? Mm-hmm. You're right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Scott Rudin was oh, the Scott producer. Rudin. Um, I was looking at Miramax and thinking um, Weinstein, but this, he had already divested himself. And I'm pretty and, sure that means it was Cynthia Schwartz working for him, and she, you know, she brought Argo to the wind. She's a, mm-hmm. she's a really good Oscar strategist, and uh, not not always, but yeah, in that, in that case, she definitely. I remember doing a lot of advocacy for No Country for Old Men, even doing an interview with Scott Rudin that year. I remember, mm-hmm. but um, well, this may have been the. Was it the first year that you went to Cannes? I believe that it. No, I went much later. Oh, did you? I, th- I have in my mind that you were in, that you went to Cannes that year, but no, I see, yeah, I see. I remember now. You're right. Wait, did I go that year? No, I don't think so. I think I went in 2009. Was my first year. Okay. But I can't remember. No Country and There Will Be Blood were both distributed by um, Paramount Vantage, and it's interesting because Paramount Vantage <clears throat> spent a fortune on both of those movies, trying to get Oscars for them. Succeeded, obviously, with No Country for Old Men, but the, No Country still only made like seventy-five million, I think. I mean, it was it, it was it was a lot, but it wasn't a ton. I think that double whammy of all that money that they threw at those for Oscar campaigning helped sort of sink Vantage eventually. Oh, dear. Wow. That's a bummer. Yeah, Vantage is no more. And it was a shame because every time you would see that Vantage logo come up, that little that, um, that sticker come up, you knew that you were in for something special. Oh, it's a drag. Um, people want us to talk about the diving bear, bell and the b- diving bear and the kitty cat. No. <laughs> the, the diving di- bear. <laughs> it's a circus movie. Bear. <laughs> and the baby seal. <laughs> the diving bell and the butterfly. A beautiful film by funny old, what's his name? Um, Julian Schnabel. Julian Schnabel, who was a DGA nominee, I believe, that year. Mm-hmm. And got really drunk and made a fool of himself at the DGA. No, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Wasn't it um, Sean Young got really drunk and, like, heckled the crap out of him when he, when he, when he won at the DGA? <laughs> Why did she heckle him of all people? I don't know. There's got to be some weird backstory there, but I love Sean Young. Everybody thinks she's crazy, but I think she's probably the only normal person in this godforsaken hellhole. I totally forgot about that, Sean Young. It's like my favorite thing to happen in the last 10 years in Hollywood. Oh, I think he was bloviating, wasn't he? Like he was going on and on at the podium or something? Probably that would not be unlike him, yeah. (laughs) 
And she said something like, get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> we should look into that and figure it out. But but what did you guys think of, of Diving Bell? A beautiful movie, right? Fascinating. Hard to watch because any movie about a guy who's paralyzed the entire film is going to be a, a tough row to hoe. But it, it was... It was it was amazing. It should have gotten more traction, I think, than it did. I guess it's maybe surprising it got as much as it did. But um, great performance by uh, what's his name? What's his name? Michael Almirak? Was that him? Yeah, Matteo Almirak. Yeah. Mateo <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that I've seen that movie since 2007. It's like one of those ones where you don't just put it on every Christmas and sit down and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe it's time to rewatch it. I if I'd been more prepared this week, I probably would have rewatched it. I don't think I could go there again. I really don't. I just don't think I could. It's one of those movies that's so artistic that that it's one of those movies like Mulholland Drive, where you cannot overlook giving the director a nomination, but the movie itself is a little bit too much of a difficult pill to swallow, so that it doesn't get a Best Picture nomination. Right. It was really hard to to watch in that way. But you know, I tell you, with nine, it would have gotten in. If they had mm. expanded, that movie definitely would have gotten in as a uh, as a Best Picture nominee. I think Zodiac would have, too, probably, if they had more than five. Well, Schnabel won the Golden Globe for Best Director. Yeah, see, that so year. Yeah, uh, definitely. That's the one thing we're talking about, Zodiac, even though it was really, really critically acclaimed and it got lots of nominations from groups all across the country, I don't think it won a single award that year that I can think of. I'll have to check on that, but I can't remember anything that it won from any group, any critics group, anywhere. So that probably helped you know, knock it out of the running, too. On the other hand, Diving Bell and the Butterfly did win a lot of major awards throughout in um, December and January. And when you think about it, a lot of those, you know, how the Oscar race really makes matters because of what movie you're up against. Like, for instance, I think Argo was helped by being up against Zero Dark Thirty. It was sort of the easier choice between Zero Dark Thirty. In a weird sort of way, No Country is the more mainstream film of movies like Diving Bell and There Will Be Blood that were really crowding the race. A lot of people were talking about them, but you can see how people would gravitate toward the movie that was a more kind of universal and grounded as opposed mm -hmm. to, you know, taking giant artistic risks. The thing about No Country is it is such expert filmmaking. It's such a master class in every aspect of filmmaking, the craft of filmmaking, that from story storyboarding to the you know everything the sound the cinematography the costumes the acting everything about it is like a perfect 10 but it's not diving bell and the butterfly you know it's not uh there will be blood it's not one of these movies that sort of crash through and 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 earn the praise of like 17 year olds who think oh mm -hmm. my god i've never seen anything like that before you know it's definitely it's not that movie Diving Bell and the Butterfly is a movie that's a little bit hard to get your head around. You, it's, it's, it's like looking at, it's very much like looking, since he's, a, he's an artist, he's a painter, it seems very much like, a, like a something you'd see in a museum hanging on the wall. It's just so beautiful and so structurally. And, and I think he's a theorist. He's a really a theoretical director. And that, that, that appeals to a certain type of film lover, but not necessarily to Oscar members, no, Academy members. For instance, I think he... I mean, yeah, he won. He won best director at Cannes that year, so they appreciate a movie like that. They appreciate that kind of direction, whereas a t for a lot of you know regular folks, it's a little bit hard to get your head around. Yeah, but the um, the the definitely the the thing to remember about that year to to really really know about that year was that 
Yes, it was about the movie. Yes, it was about how good No Country for Old Man was, but it was also about the universal love for and appreciation for and acknowledgement of the work of the Coen brothers. Like, you can't dismiss that. I don't know if No Country would have won if you took all that out. I don't know if it would have, because I think of my life and how long the Coen brothers have been in film and how long they've been praised by the critics and how much they've influenced so many other filmmakers and the chances they've taken in the films they've made and to never have had to win Best Picture and then to come into the Oscar race with No Country for Old Men. That is a perfect storm. That's a movie that cannot lose. And people should always remember that when you're looking at the Oscar race. If you see something like that that's coming down the pike, you have to pay attention and say, wait a second, it's not just about the movie. They're not going to dismiss this moment just because of the ending. Believe me, they're not. It's bigger than this. I didn't didn't have a sense of that groundswell of love for them. For me, loving the Coens was always this thing you did on a deserted island of like five other people. Fargo was the standout exception, and that was a number of years before this, and I kind of felt like... I, I. I just did, I didn't I didn't see the love for them that you saw. Well, I'm looking you know, at it what from I was the about perspective say, of it, someone it, it, in the Oscar race that's watching the Oscar race and looking at how Academy voters are and how they've evolved since the time that I was young and who's in the Academy now and what the Coens have meant over time. That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking more at that. Same with Catherine Bigelow. You could say, oh, well, when was Catherine Bigelow a big favorite with the Academy? It didn't matter. She had built up so much cred that all the press about her people thinking about what she means to the industry, what her win would mean. Same with the Coens. Like, it's just something you feel at the time if you're looking at the way Oscars are chosen. And I know, I hear what you're saying, and you've said it to me over and over and over again, but our perspectives on this particular race in this year are completely opposite. Like, whatever... Uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm not arguing with you. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just admitting that I did not see it coming and explaining why. I think you I, felt this kind of per- closer, personal, more you know, in- intimate relationship with them and their work, and part of that was the acknowledgement that they were outsiders. But after Fargo, they stopped being outsiders with the industry. They were very much And I will say, too, what we were talking about before is that since they are, since they are reserved and they're not in the public eye very often, they don't, they're not one of those directors who's part of the cult of personality. They're not a Hitchcock or a Scorsese or a Tarantino or a Spielberg or, an, or a Woody Allen. They, you don't love the director as a, as a person. You love their work. Because no, you don't I even they, know them as a person. No, you have no idea who them. they are as people. But other directors who have a cult of personality around them, like everyone loves Scorsese the man, in addition to loving his films, well, right? But you cannot different. really love the Coens as people because you don't know them. Yeah, but you do, though. People do love them. As, if you just do a Google image search for the Coen brothers, you see the But, I say, but I'm saying that's based entirely on their films. It's not no, based on anything so. that they have projected in their personality. All right, I, we can drop this subject, but let me just have one more point I want to make is that when you're building iconic status, part of that is the mystery and the allure of being someone who is you know, still kind of art, you know, they are phantoms, like Woody Allen, for instance. Woody Allen is a different subject because he's a comedian and he's been out there, but the Coens absolutely have that romanticism about them, Joel and Ethan Cohen, who they are, what they are, you know, the, the pictures of them, how quiet and private they are. That has built up allure and magic and fascination over time. It just has, and people do like them. When they got up on stage, everybody laughed, and they walk into a room, everybody gasps. Everybody 
Barbara Streisand. Well, you, was you and Craig mind. would know because you have been in the room with him. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying from my own personal perspective, I can't visualize and conceptualize what they are as people. I only love them because of their movies. Well, I think you're thinking of it as knowing them as people. I'm thinking of it as the allure that they create, the mm -hmm. image, the projected image that people have of them, the reverence they have for them, which has mm -hmm. been built up over time and was finally cashed in in 2007. I'm telling you, when Barbara Streisand gasps when Joel and Ethan Cohen walk in the room, you know that you're dealing right. with a formidable force you know, here. The mystery around them and their above allness makes them even more fascinating to people. Probably, in the same way yeah. that Kubrick, Kubrick is another director. In the same way, he's a, he's a recluse, but he's loved. People think that they feel like that they know him. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good example. Okay, you guys want to hear the Sean Young story? I just found it. Yeah, definitely. It said um, they're at the thing, and and Julian Schnabel was on stage, and she yelled out, "Hurry up with the speech!" And he looked like Raging Bull. He shot back, have another cocktail, sweetheart, or would you rather finish my speech for me? And it says the entire room gasped. He almost charged off without finishing his speech to the point where the music started to play. But he calmed himself back and finished. Um, it says her date was whispering to her that she was drunk. And she would push him off and slur, no, you're drunk. I'm not leaving. You leave. <laughs> That's all that happened. Classic. All she said was, hurry up with the speech. Oh God. She I was guess. probably right. It'd probably been going on and on and on. <laughs> it was his moment. It was rude of her to do that. It was wrong, but it still cracks me up. Was... I want to see Sean, La Sean Young and Armand White get together. It <laughs> <laughs> could be a great couple, wouldn't they? Yeah, really. But but I guess, yeah, hurry up with the speech. It is kind of mean, right? Well, yeah, that's just not right. And, you know, you know, that's a pretty dignified, formal, distinguished occasion. You don't heckle the guy who's won. But there are right? only five winners, you know. There's yeah. only five DGA film guys, and he's one yeah. of them, you know. So why would she do that? Why would she just... She was loaded, and that's what everybody was thinking. And she has a history of saying what's on her mind. That's what everybody was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know they were. <laughs> you know they were. They were going, oh, God, please shut up. Here we go. <laughs> I heard heard that it was going on way too long, his speech. So um, maybe she had to pee or something. It was still wrong. <laughs> you can't do that to people. <laughs> we're trying to give her a, a reason here. But right. So let's continue with this year. Um, uh, yeah. A couple of other movies that I think were a big deal, which was... Um, Ratatouille was a wonderful Pixar film that won that year, and that is still considered one of the best um, animated not, uh, animated wins, right? Because it's such a fantastic film, and it has that great speech by Anton Ego, which people trot out a lot to talk about sometimes how film criticism can really suck eggs. If it's uh, uh -huh. more about the critic than it is about the work, you know, if it becomes, if they become so sort of in love with the smell of their own farts that they kind of lose the overall perspective of why they got into the business in the first place. So I feel like that the Anton Ego message is really important to, to always pay attention to, especially now when you have so many people chiming in on things that just uh, take all the fun out of it. At first, Ego thinks it's a joke, but as Linguini explains, Ego's smile disappears. He doesn't react beyond asking an occasional question. 
And when the story is done, Ego stands, thanks us for the meal, for the meal. and leaves without another word. The following day, his review appears. In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. We thrive on negative criticism, which is fun to write and to read. But the bitter truth we critics must face is that in the grand scheme of things, the average piece of junk is probably more meaningful than our criticism designating itself. But there are times when a critic truly risks something, and that is in the discovery and defense of the new. The world is often unkind to new talent, new creations. The new needs friends. Last night I experienced something new. An extraordinary meal from a singularly unexpected source. To say that both the meal and its maker have challenged my preconceptions about fine cooking is a gross understatement. They have rocked me to my core. In the past, I have made no secret of my disdain for Chef Gusto's famous motto, anyone can cook, but I realize only now do I truly understand what he meant. Not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. It is difficult to imagine more humble origins than those of the genius now cooking at Gusto's, who is, in this critic's opinion, nothing less than the finest chef in France. I will be returning to Gusto soon, hungry for more. It was a great night. Ratatouille was the very first movie that I reviewed, that I did a formal review for the site. It's the very first movie I reviewed for Words Daily. Oh, nice. Oh, and should we talk about Marion Cotillard? I was hoping you were going to mention that. Yeah, we got Oh, yeah, her. definitely. So the, the beginning of the year when Marion Cotillard came out, she was, she was one of the people that, you know, um, a lot of, a few of us were advocating. Right, because she was she was up against Julie Christie for away from her, but Julie Christie had already won an Oscar. Still, she was considered the favorite alongside Ellen Page for Juno. They were really the two that were leading, and Marianne Cotillard was clearly the best of the five, and an, an exceptional performance. But there was only one problem: she barely spoke English, and she was really, really French, and no one knew who she was. So the the idea behind Marianne Cotillard was really, I think it was Fox Searchlight that handled that movie, or Sony, no, it was Sony Picture Classics, was that was to turn Marianne Cotillard in one season into a red carpet goddess, and they did it, and she did it, which was one of the marvels to behold. Um, it was like magic watching that transformation, because suddenly she started speaking English, she took lessons, and she got really good at English, and she was able to... She was at every single red carpet event, dressed to the nines, gorgeous. Because her love, her uh, Edith Piaf character is kind of weird looking, you know, not not beautiful as as Marion Cotillard is one of the most beautiful women in the world. So when people started, she was kind of like the Lupita Nyong'o situation, you know. How do you take someone totally obscure that no one knows, and bring them home to a win? Well, the way you do that is you turn them into 
um, the best dressed and most beautiful, desirable person on the red carpet, the one the photographers chase after to find out what she's wearing, and always there in front of the camera, always talking, always smiling, always being charming. And that's what Marion Cotillard did that year. And she did it probably more intensely than I... The only other person I've ever seen top her was Jeff Bridges. <laughs> <laughs> right. Jeff he, did, he had a beauty contest of his own <laughs> when, he had to, when he had to win for crazy heart i mean that guy was everywhere everywhere at all times and so that's that was a, a spectacular thing to watch was how they transformed her and, and credit how, to stephen holt because i mean as, I, as, as sometimes stephen holt and i have clashed and and he he does kind of go overboard sometimes but he was on board with marion cotillard really early and he did yeah. a great interview with her and he got that interview seen everywhere and oh, he was yeah. talking up he was going to all the movie sites talking her up he he was the first guy who encouraged me to seek the movie out i drove all the way to st louis missouri to see that movie since it was not playing in any theater nearby me i had to drive three hours to see that movie that summer yeah no he that really showed you what advocacy can do that movie mm -hmm. that year that because you know we were all strongly advocating for her and when she won it was we all just went whoa you know yeah. because it was like only a few of us even predicted her to win because people mm. really thought that julie christie was going to win and but that's that really shows you what can happen when you have the you know her working hard on the publicity end and then people really strongly advocating saying no and plus you know like Lisa Tabak says, all you really got to do is get them to watch it, you know, and, and mm -hmm. if you could just get them to see her in the part, there was no chance they were not going to vote for her. But it was just a matter of getting them to want to watch this movie, this friendship. And the trailer was really good for that movie, too. Even if you didn't see the movie, you could almost give her the Oscar on the basis of the trailer to see yeah. the transformation, especially, as you say, knowing how beautiful she is, just stunningly gorgeous in person, and to see how she had to be sort of made made more dowdy and less than perfect for the movie and then to age on film too right. over a, over a, over a period of decades is and extraordinary to see she's one of the few actors i think that has won an oscar and really done something with it like yeah. her career has not slowed down she only remains more impressive to me with each thing she does like she takes acting very seriously She's not in it for uh, being a movie star. She she's in it for the work. She's she made some movies that have made a lot of money, but she's also kept a foot on on both sides of the Atlantic, which I really respect and admire a lot. She's made some Hollywood films, but she also doesn't. She hasn't forgotten her roots. You know, mm, she hasn't left her her native country to come, you know, be a Hollywood person. And I can't wait to see her in Macbeth. And she's fantastic in the Dardenne Brothers movie that that played in Cannes. And I don't know if that little movie will ever come here. It will, but it'll get distributed by, like, IFC, and, like, five people will see it, like, all of their movies. Right, and it doesn't have the heat because she didn't win Best Actress, so... Right. Her, her acceptance speech at the Oscars is one of my top five favorite Oscar moments. I don't need... I'm always skeptical of those things because I always assume it's an extension of their performance, but it seemed genuine to me. She seemed... She obviously had worked so hard all year long to 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 get there, and I, I wonder if she really believed that it was going to happen. I think she felt a little she she acted at least surprised that that they would bestow this on a woman from France who you know wasn't wasn't a huge box office draw or anything like that. It just seemed like a really genuine... She seemed genuinely moved and excited. It was, she like, did the opposite thing that Jason Reitman did. Nobody knew what Jason Reitman was like until he got up on stage and started accepting awards and people could see that he was sort of a 
prick. And she did the opposite. <laughs> she she got on stage for the Baptist when she won, and the Golden Globes when she won, and for all the other things that she won. Probably she won the SAG. And and every time that she gave a speech, if she was auditioning for the Oscars, and I we talk about that a lot. I don't think she did win the SAG. I think Julie Christie won that, didn't she? Oh, okay, yeah, you're right about that. But um, she did win the BAFTA, and she and um, just a bunch of slew of other things. No, it was, but you're right no, about actually, Julie I don't think that. I think maybe. Let me just look really quickly. But didn't Ellen Page win that? Or um, the thing was, was um, it was a surprise when she won. Believe me, if you look at the predictions thing, not everybody was predicting Marianne Cotillard. Uh, just a few of us. Most people were predicting mm -hmm. Julie Christie to win that. So when she got on stage, it was considered an upset. Like people were not predicting it, unless you were kind of on the inside. But I remember taking a huge risk doing it, going, oh, you know, I just got to do it because I really feel like. Oh it's yeah, me too. I mean, I, for one thing, I was not going to drive three hours to see a movie and then say it wasn't any good. I, I was going to love it, even on the drive there. I was already loving it, so I was going to be championing in that movie. From because I went to such a lot of trouble to see it. Yeah, Julie And then Christie. after seeing it, then I was sold completely. Julie Christie won that SAG. She Did won. she win the SAG? Okay, yeah. yeah. But I'll just do and a quick search for those predictions because I'm, I'm interested to see what... Um, well, probably people realize how rare it is for a, for an actress in a foreign language film to win Best Actress. It just doesn't happen very often. And people are looking at... at the likelihood based on precedent and yeah, there's, not, there's not a lot of precedent for it's it it's like me and you ryan tom o'neill <laughs> mm -hmm. nathaniel r david carr stephen holt nathaniel knows his actresses that's and that's it and the, everybody else was julie christie no chris wow. tapley had marianne cotillard but everybody else was julie christie and thompson julie christie hmm. um you know the buzz meter julie christie odds maker julie christie um gurus of gold julie christie you know Mm. Um, so that's what, what a big surprise it was. Pete Hammond, Julie Christie. I was in such a cocoon. I, when I get something, when I get stuck on something, I don't even listen to the noise. Right, but, I know. But I'm just saying that, like, it, it was a huge, I mean, that's, that is how you predict. But generally, you, you and I are both, we take chances and we're wrong. But yeah, this was an instance right. where we took a chance and we turned out to be right. And that was a great yeah. thing to have happen. It was. Fantastic. And, and also even more gratifying that she's like, as you say, she's really made the best of it. She's really made it work for her. So like you look at Chris Tapley's predictions and he's got both Tilda Swinton and Marianne Cotillard, which were two long shots. So mm -hmm. good for him. And then you see you see that he picked Diving Bell for adapt, adapted screenplay instead of no country. So no. it's a huge chance he took. But nonetheless, that is that is what happens when you're a predictor who takes chances. You, you're going to get yeah. stuff wrong, but you're going to get stuff right, too, you know. But to not have predicted them for No Country to win screenplay, that to me was a was a tragic flaw because that was a great fucking screenplay. Mm. Great screenplay. Beyond, beyond. You know? Perfect, actually. As you said, one of the five best best picture winners of all time, I would say. It's yeah. right up there. For me it is for sure. It's it's the best film that's won best picture since I've been blogging about the Oscars that's pretty that's 15 years so it's, it's number one I consider it up there with Godfather and All About Eve and you know the, mm -hmm. the best of the best Casablanca like to me it is that good but maybe because I've seen it 300 times <laughs> for all I talk about so being surprised that it won I still predicted it I was just looking at my predictions from that year Oh, see, there you go. So you did predict it would win. Yeah, but inside I just didn't think it was going to happen. I've been burned so many times well, what did you? What else did you predict? I predicted No Country. I predicted, predicted them for director, Daniel Day-Lewis for actor, Marion Cotillard for actress, nice. Javier Bardem for supporting, 
Saoirse Ronan for supporting actress. Don't ask me what the fuck I was thinking there. Well, you were thinking well, maybe Atonement would win something. What's that? You were thinking maybe Atonement would win something. Yeah, but why didn't I pick Kate Blanchett? That's weird. Well, yeah. I actually did pretty well in my predictions that year. You did. Sounds like you did really, really well. <clears throat> I got spoiled. It was the first year of me being in in the Oscar game, and then two years in a row we had No Country in the Hurt Locker, right? Or was some dog millionaire in between them? But anyway, there was like, I, I thought, well, this is I'm entering the golden age of the Oscars, and then since since then it's just gone downhill. <laughs> <laughs> it really has, hasn't it? In a way, uh, I think that one. I mean, except for this, this most recent year was fantastic. This year was yeah. absolutely excellent, beautiful, perfect Oscar night. I, I think but, it was, except I still think Gravity won too many fucking Oscars. I'm sorry, but I do. Like, mm. I don't think it's that good of a movie in retrospect. It's good, mm. but it's not great. I mean, it's not. It's fine. It's just not. You know, watch it again now. Yeah, I, I, you're right. I haven't even watched it again. I haven't even had the desire to watch it again. But you also try. Let's you know, also consider that not all Oscars are created equal. And yeah. when you win the sound, all both sound Oscars, and you know, it just doesn't hold the same weight as winning Best Director. I mean, well, he won that too, though, didn't it? <laughs> it was kind of one of those things that, like, <laughs> but I mean, it didn't moment. even get nominated for best screenplay. It so was they, like a it moment had, in time. It had chinks in its armor. It was a, it was a moment in time. Gravity. It took everybody yeah. at the moment. It was like Slumdog in that way. Like it, it was a movie of its moment. But I don't know if it's going to have staying power. I really don't. I don't know if you can sit there and watch it again because all it is is special effects. That's all that movie is. But fine, that's fine. I can live with that. I think Steve McQueen should have won Best Director, but I can still live with it. It's fine. I just, to me, um, it is like you're saying, it's a good Oscar year compared to the other ones. That's that's the main point we're trying to make here. Is that it's right. could have been so much worse. It could have been so much worse, and it, we had to sit through King's Speech winning. We had to sit through the artist, even though the artist is a good movie. It's a good movie. I know it's okay. I, I just for me, I, I just sometimes I I. I have, I can't help it. I have a little bit of resentment against movies that are good, if they're not my favorite movie of the year. You know, I mean, it's an, it's human nature, I guess, that yeah. that you had other favorites that year, and and art, the artist didn't didn't surpass those others. I just felt like it was such a, it was a great, good movie in a lot of ways, but it was such a trifle. Like it just didn't mm -hmm. seem to me deserving of best picture of the year. You know what I mean? Like. That right. was my problem with Argo. It's like, as good as Argo was, it wasn't best picture of the year. It was okay. It was a good movie. Good movie, you know? Funny, good movie. Was it like, this, like at the end of Saving Private Ryan when Tom Hanks says, earn this? That's how I feel about Affleck and Hasnavicious now. Now they have to really earn their Oscars. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I mean, they have to really prove that they deserve the acclaim for the artist and for Argo. <laughs> yeah, I have. I, I think Ben Affleck is smart enough. He's poor, poor Hasan Vicious though. He just, he just took a big old chin and can. And I really liked his movie. I was one of the few that did. I know you but, really championed that movie. You supported it and wrote really a, a nice, beautiful review about it. I, I don't. I haven't seen it, so I don't know what people's complaint is. I appreciate his intention. It's not a movie yeah. for the cool kids though, because it's too oh. sappy. You know, it's sappy. So and people didn't like it. They didn't like her performance. They didn't like it. It's about you know this little boy, and it's just very cloying. But to me, I liked the intention behind it. I liked the story he was trying to tell about these sad refugees in Chechnya, and you know these orphans in this war-torn country, and and the, the human rights that they had to fight for. Um, 
to get the these these acts of violence by the Russians um, declared war crimes against these people. And to me, all that is bigger than is it a movie Guy Lodge would like? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. The name of it is The Search, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, right. The thing about it is that I liked her performance in it, at least at least when she was speaking French. When they made her speak English, it wasn't so good. But that's because the English dialogue sounded silly. But yeah, um, right. for all for all the fuss and bother that was made out of Jean Dujardin after the artist, she's been the one who has made the impressive transition from that movie. She's been great twice now, and he's not done a damn thing worth anything. <laughs> he looks great in a tux, though. Tucks and a smile, that's all he is. I loved him in Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> oh, no, that's right. Oh, yeah, right. That was such a that. tiny, tiny part, though. Yeah. I know, but I loved him in it. It's my favorite part of the movie. It's one of my favorite parts. Like, fucking Scorsese, man. Sorry to, to detour, but I just have to say, like, I, every time I watch that movie, it's like, holy fucking shit. Did he really just do that? Like, that scene, that scene... Um, is so amazing because when you have you have uh, Jean Dujardin, you have a, a little fish tank behind him, and the camera's right on, and the fish tank is, takes up the whole screen. And then you switch over to Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's in the center, and the whole ocean is behind him. It's like the comparison mm-hmm. between America and this tiny country. He keeps switching back and forth. It's just so beautifully done, that whole sequence. If I was teaching a class on filmmaking, I would show that scene. Because it's so great. It's just, wow, nobody can do what Scorsese does. Nobody, you know. So, anyway, that was just... That movie is respected by so many different types of people. It's, it's people that I would never associate with and people that I love to associate with, you know. It, 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 hit, it hit, hit the target. It pushed the buttons for people across the board. It's really, really high, I think, on, on the IMD Top 50 still, even, even a year later. Um, I think it's right... Let me check real quick. Wolf of Wall Street is right behind Chinatown and Scarface. On the IMD top fifty, so it's just really popular among that kind of fan. Oh yeah, no, that's that's yeah. one good thing. You if you want to get, oh my God, Ryan, can I just tell you something really funny? Just yeah, just on a lark, I was I, I did a search for traffic for our site like in the last two years, like what was the highest post? And uh-huh. okay, so the main page, of course, gets because I don't have the site designed for people to skip around. They just hit the main. Let page. me guess. I can probably guess. Is okay, that Jennifer Lawrence in a bikini post? No, no. Okay. But you can probably guess if you just think about it for a minute. What do you think the number one? I uh, can't even. Can't think. You're on the right track, ish. Gay. The gay porn set. Close. For, for King's Speech. No. I know that was a big traffic You're getter. Closer with gay. <laughs> Stick with gay, huh? Gay and sex. What could it, what could it be? Gay sex. Oh, oh, is it is it is it uh, Natalie Portman and, no, and, and the no. the lesbian thing? If it, well, lesbian sex. <laughs> Blue is the warmest yeah. color. <laughs> Sorry, a post you wrote called Two Clips from Blue is the warmest colors." The oh my god! Fucking <laughs> <laughs> in two years. I circled it and finally, finally got around it. But yeah, this those things. I just have put lesbian or clit right in the headline, and you've got, you've got. There's your traffic right there. 
<laughs> because at that time, people were like just like wanting to cut off their heads to see a, mo- see a scene from that movie. Remember before anybody else had heard, <laughs> right? Of sure. Uh-huh. Which is like porn. Lesbian porn is free on the internet. Don't people mm-hmm. know that? It's like I know, porn, I know. Lesbian porn. But you know, they just want to see famous, pretty actresses. Who is like it's like they want to drag them into it. Yeah. When to, to see a porn star do it is like oh well, they do that all the time. But to see a but to see a, a legitimate actress do it, that's something special. When you see Natalie Portman and, and Mila Kunis, you know that I know that post had to had to be one of the high hitters too because oh, it was sad. something I wrote something about how um, Aronofsky got them drunk on tequila in order to get them to do the sex scene, which is probably not even true, but people want to believe that, right? That's a pretty hot sex scene, though. It is, yeah. That's a lot hotter, hotter, hotter than, than blue is the warmest color, and they way. keep their clothes on. All right, so in five years, be just barely edging out blue is the warmest color, which is still number nine. Uh, all the other ones are like, you know, the main page and other and other <laughs> kind of weird shit that like page two, page three. The main portals when people just first click on the site, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. But Magic Mike the Musical. <laughs> wow. Are you kidding? No, oh, my God. I'm not kidding. Magic Mike. So the power of celebrity, the power of less. Oh, and then right after Blue is the Warmest Color is <laughs> the social lubricant intoxicating black swan sex scene. That sounds like me. That sounds like yeah, something I would say. That was your the social lubricant. <laughs> <laughs> Lesbian lube. <laughs> Can't beat it. Magic Mike, naked, what's his name? Um, <laughs> lesbian. <laughs> well, now we know for sure. <laughs> right? Now we know for sure. <laughs> You've been listening to episode 68 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy, Ryan Adams, and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast.